You're going to love this. Just love it. From Pacifica Radio, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. In Oregon, on 91.7 FM, KYAK Central Coast, 106.7 FM, KSOW Cottage Grove. In Pennsylvania, on 93 FM, WLRI Lancaster. In Hawaii, on 88.5 FM, KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Ohio, on WGRN 94.1 FM, Columbus. In Minneapolis, St. Paul, on AM 950, KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and Blanketing the Globe, five days a week on Radio Sputnik. The broadcast is usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but I am in for Brad today. I'm Angie Cuero, host of the syndicated conversation show, In Deep with Angie Cuero. Now, bless his tiny toes, Brad gave me carte blanche to share whatever stories I would like with you today. This one grabbed my eye for you. Both Finland and Ontario are giving basic guaranteed income a shot. Now, a lot of countries make some effort to sustain their citizens who can't provide for themselves. And they do it in a lot of ways. But all those ways fall apart at some point. Look at the U.S., for example. Social Security is for people who worked as employees. That does nothing for the growing number of private contractors. The less you worked for someone else, the tinier your Social Security income. And then there's unemployment. Again, if you're a contractor who can't find work, tough luck on unemployment. And unemployment runs out. The statistics the government releases on unemployment only include what they call the labor force. To be part of the labor force, you have to be A, actively working, or B, actively looking. A Harris survey last year found that up to 40% of people without jobs have given up looking. They're not part of the labor force. They're not part of the statistics. And then there's welfare or what's come in the wake of welfare. It won't keep you alive in a lot of cities, and it doesn't last forever. If you try to get work, you lose that amount, what you're getting paid at work, and you're out transportation costs and child care. So think about that. If you are getting government aid, you lose money when you try to work. There's disability, supplemental income, other programs, but both here and abroad, those are complicated. A lot of them are finite, and there are still people who cannot make ends meet. So what if everyone were guaranteed a basic, decent income? What if they didn't have to prove they were looking for work that may not even exist? What if parents had the money to cover childcare so they could go out and get a job without losing money? What if people with disabilities didn't have the added burden of proving again and again that, no, they're still not able to work. Okay, maybe that sounds good, but here's the flip side. Who pays for that? In the U.S., we can't even get the rich to keep their money in the country, let alone contribute proportionately to the common good. People in need of money are ostracized here. They're lazy. They're less than. They're not trying. How are you going to get public opinion to favor the idea enough to give them money to live on. Now, I need to stop here for a moment. I want to tip my hat to the Freakonomics guys. They did an excellent show all about basic income, the history of it really fascinating, and with some real surprises. Some of the info I'm sharing with you came from their work. So 
Huzzah to Freakonomics. Go check them out. The Freakonomics show on minimum income from April 16th of this year. So Finland and Ontario are both going to give basic income a shot. Now this part might surprise you. Finland's government leans right. This does have appeal for conservatives. If all the paperwork and offices and follow-up and enforcement of all those different support programs for the unemployed, the aged, the disabled could be swept into one, no questions asked, minimum income, a lot of money could actually be saved. This could lead to not more, but less government spending. And we know how the right loves that. Now, I knew when Brad asked me to sit in today, exactly who I wanted to bring to you to get into this topic. Dave Johnson is one of today's smartest voices covering the economic issues facing the U.S. Now, I brought him to Kepler's Books in Menlo Park. That's where we tape my show. And here's my conversation with Dave. Voices in favor of a basic income in the U.S. are growing louder, not just from the compassionate left, but from the government-loathing libertarians and the government-shrinking conservatives. Now, what kind of magic could bring these people together? It is the basic guaranteed income, or as it's also called, basic minimum income, unconditional or universal income. No matter what you call it, it's not welfare. And it applies to everybody. You're rich, you're poor, you're in the middle. You get this basic minimum income. So how would that work? And how likely is it to ever happen in the U.S., where it's been brought up since the 1930s and is being brought up again? Dave Johnson is our go-to guy on this and so many other financial topics. He's a senior fellow at the Campaign for America's Future. He blogs at seeingtheforest.com. You find his analyses of critical financial matters popping up at Crooks and Liars and The Smirking Chimp. Mike Stark of Brave New Films calls Dave a fantastic grandfather of the blogosphere. Welcome back to the broadcast, Grandpa. Grandpa. <laughs> Well, that's, that's a heck of a way to start a show. Yeah, I thought you'd like it. <laughs> Grandpa. Hey, Don't. get off my lawn. This is why I love having you here, Pull Dave. up your pants. <laughs> I'm here. So let's talk about the whole idea of a basic minimum income. It's not, okay, opinionizing. This is not the government being asked to be a fairy godmother. It's saying that we're spending so much money getting welfare together. We're spending so much money figuring out who qualifies for disability. You know, unemployment runs out. This is an easy way to cancel out all that paperwork, make sure people get to eat and live. Well, back up. You said government. What is government? Government is us. Okay? Yes. Government is us getting together and making decisions on how to do things that make our lives better. Of course, we have to make decisions that, that last, that are sustainable. But if we could provide a basic minimum income. Thomas, uh, Milton Friedman, not Thomas Friedman, <laughs> Milton <laughs> Friedman guy. argued that the market for labor is out of balance because people can't bargain because they need jobs too badly, for mm -hmm. example. So that was a conservative argument for it. I think Nixon proposed a negative income tax. Yeah. So it goes back on both sides of the argument that People should just have a basic minimum income, and then from there, you go out and you work, and you have an, an arguability, to, a leverage to ask for better conditions at work and such, because you can fall back on something. It's always been that people have to go out on their own against concentrated wealth, against uh, corporations are aggregated wealth, for example, and you don't have a good bargaining position to go ask for a job. They, you take what you can get. We give out 
welfare. We give out, well, welfare ended, but we give out, you know, food stamps, social security, health care, etc. All of these things cost money. What if just everybody got this basic minimum income and then we went from there? Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned Nixon, because even though Nixon was verging toward a basic minimum income, he was so careful to say that that's not what it was. You know, and eventually when you saw some vestige of that making into the American government code, it was the earned income credit, which basically right. said everybody gets to make a certain amount without being taxed on it. So it seems like, at least in America, we're willing to kind of nudge up against it. But there's a, a terror of identifying what it is. Yeah, I think Jesse Meyerson is, is the guy who brought it into the current discussion. The idea that we're entering a time when there might not be jobs is a new part of this discussion, that the robots are coming and nobody will be able to, will, will be able to find work because the robots are going to do a lot, of the, a lot of the work. So then the question becomes, well, who owns the robots and gets the benefit of that? But you don't have an economy if... If there are no jobs. I saw a great cartoon a while back. What, what if we get to the point where there's one rich guy who has all the money? That will be like next <laughs> week, won't very, it? Yeah, this, we're close. <laughs> so the, the basic argument is that we all have human rights, and as citizens in a democracy, we are, here comes the word, entitled <laughs> to certain things. And the fruits of that democracy, the prosperous fruits of that democracy, should be spread much more evenly. So we, the people in our government that is us, then the purpose of government being to make our lives better, why do we not just start with a basic lifestyle, a basic amount that we all get? Now, of course, there's work that has to be done. Right. Plenty of work that has to be done. Food's got to be grown and everything else. But that opportunity to bargain for better return on your work from the, as, as uh, Friedman argued, mm -hmm. gives you a base from which to live your life. You know what? I can't, I can't really editorialize on my own show, but since I'm doing Brad's show this week, can we back up to the word entitlement? Because I've kind of had it up to here with people using entitlement like some sort of epithet. Yeah, it's, it's things you're entitled to. Yeah. You're entitled to these things as a citizen in the United States. How did they become the a dirty word? people of the United States have for a couple centuries now invested in our common infrastructure, education, and all of those things. Laws, courts, all of those things through taxes and through work. We built this system, the American system, which is prosperous because democracies can be prosperous. We built up paid taxes, uh, we, we, the roads, the railroads, and all of those things that we all contributed to bring back certain fruits. Mm -hmm. Prosperity is the fruits, are the, are the fruits, prosperity is the, is the fruit, fruit of democracy. There you go. How's that? <laughs> and so as citizens in this democracy, we're all entitled to some of that, even though now it's, it's siphoned off, you know, the taxes that were to come out of that prosperity for those who did much, much better out of that, out of various government programs, contracting, etc. Those are, those are largely being siphoned off to a few wealthy and corporation types. But 
And you and I can go down that road for oh, hours. Oh, we could go on that. Let's on not that do road. that. Okay, so that <laughs> should come back to us. We are entitled to certain things. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's talk about if we do have a basic income, if we recognize that human beings have a right to, to live and have a place to house, and we give them the money to do that, where does the money come from? The function, okay, there's, there's various ways to look at an economy, okay? The modern monetary theorists have a whole different way of understanding how an economy works, especially if you're a country that can print its own money. And let, let's, go, let's, let's go from the current, how do you pay for it, rather right. than this, this flow of a, of a large uh, pool that you expand and contract. We are the wealthiest country ever, but it is vastly concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. Right. The, we are actually cutting back and cutting back on things that we could be doing much more of. But if our economy was much more equitably distributed, then the fruits of that economy could more equitably cover this. Okay. But right now we have uh, Social Security, for example. You don't need Social Security if you have a minimum guaranteed income. Right. We have food stamps, which, which since the recession have been a lot. We have unemployment. You wouldn't need unemployment anymore. I could go through all of these. But right. the point being that right there you start at a certain amount, just right there. But if the tax structure were returned to anything like approaching what it used to be, like under Eisenhower, for example, mm-hmm. 90% at the top. And at the top, that means you've already made a lot of money. Right. And then if you make another million, you get another 100000 Okay. Or put it this way. If we had 90% taxes at the top, hedge fund managers would only bring in $100 million a year. And I'm so sad for them. Okay. So but I, see, I see the possibility of that ever happening is, is like purple fairies you know, well, descending from the sky. Look, you, you have to get past thinking about the current Congress, which simply will not pass anything, and just look at how we should have a country if we had democratic control of the country. So again. like we could shoot for 90% and be happy with 70% if we yeah, can get it. 70%, for example, okay. or something. Well, you could, yeah, sure. You wouldn't get that either. You're not going to get anything. But it's <laughs> okay. <laughs> So what are we no, talking literally, about? Literally, you're not going to get anything. <laughs> but were we able to, again, control our country, things that we could get, okay? I, I'm, I'm going out in, you know, ballooning out into broad subjects. But the, but the fact is that there is enough to cover a guaranteed minimum, okay, if we were a more equitable country that also all of us could realize a share of the fruits of our democracy, I mentioned, and, and this was before you joined us, Dave, I, I mentioned to our listeners that they really got to listen to the Freakonomics episode on this, which is basic, in, uh, basic income. They did a fantastic analysis. And one of the things that turned up in there, Dave, was that there was an experiment in Canada with right, a small right, area of right. Canada. And one of the things that they discovered was more intricate. It wasn't a clear finding. You really had to dig down to find it. It looked as though unemployment went up which would be an inherent negative. But in fact, unemployment went up because younger kids didn't have to walk out of school and go join the workforce. And the sad thing about the experiment was it ended before anybody found out whether that, in fact, increased the value and health of the culture to have better educated people able to get better jobs. And people were able to pay for health care. So the general health of the community went up. So at least where we have a small indicator... It looks pretty positive. 
One of the things I'm trying to get at here, I, I, I'm trying not to get involved in the nitty-gritty details of how do you pay for it and, and how do you get this through Congress, because you can't. You can pay for it, but you can't get, you know. But in, I'm trying to help people envision, imagine the work environment in America if people weren't forced to take the lowest paying job, they, you know, any job they can find for any number of hours. That, imagine the work relationship if, if people who work had more power to negotiate here. Imagine the work relationship if employers were trying to find people to come work for them. Mm -hmm. that's, see, that's where I'm trying to go with this. The idea that we have had this society for... Since, since the late 70s, it has kind of tried to maintain a certain amount of unemployment on purpose to, mm -hmm. to keep people in a position where they had to take what they could get, you know, and, and taking out, you know, being against what, you, what they call entitlements because they might keep people from going and taking whatever disgusting job they had to take, you know, at any minimum income. I'm trying to get people to envision a world where if, we really had a democracy and where people really had the power here, what it could be like if, if you weren't desperate to, to take some job and could actually take the job you should have, that mm -hmm. you wanted, that you could do well in, okay? Uh, and the society would change so dramatically, far beyond what you're talking about, where, oh my God, people could actually keep going to school because they didn't desperately need to go get a job if they had a minimum income. The kinds of empowerment of the things people could do, the things people could think about, the, the ways people could get themselves educated that could, could evolve out of that, if we could just break this cycle we've been in for some time now of these ideas of, of people don't deserve things, you know, this, this anti-democratic as in small d democrat you idea. have to prove you deserve you right. have to prove that you, you that you have you merit. have to go out of yeah. work and yeah. all of these things it's it's like a, a slave relationship in a way coming out of coming out of slave mentality and slave owner mentality that we have a sad tradition of in this country you're listening to the Bradcast, home of Brad Friedman and Desi Doyen. I'm Angie Cuero. We've got more of Dave Johnson coming to you in just a moment, talking about American infrastructure, what it would cost to fix it, and how that might be done. Stick around. Hey, it's Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. And while the Bradcast and Bradblog.com fight for election integrity all year around like no other media outlet in the nation, we need your support to keep doing so now more than ever. Please stop by Bradblog.com slash donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going or even just a one-time only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions that those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds to stop by bradblog.com slash donate right now. And thanks. It's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life for me. And the end. 
infrastructure is good. It's the Bradcast. I'm Angie Cuero in for Brad and Desi today. Infrastructure is good, or it could be. Dave Johnson takes that on in just a moment. Coming up after that, Donald Trump has been compared to Adolf Hitler countless times. You're going to hear two real historians take on that comparison, and yes, some of them are legitimate. I want to take a moment here to thank Kepler's Books in Silicon Valley. I do my weekly national radio show, In Deep, from Kepler's, and this week they kindly let me stay overtime in their space to record the broadcast. I really appreciate it, so thank you to Kepler's. And by the way, any opinions I express today may or may not be held by the fine people of Kepler's. They certainly aren't endorsed by Kepler's, and I speak only for myself. With butt firmly covered, let's head back there to finish up our conversation with Dave Johnson, Senior Fellow with the Campaign for America's Future. I want to go beyond our, our specified topic because I know you're having a lot of thoughts of late about infrastructure. And someone, you can remind me who declared it Infrastructure Week, and you're saying every week needs to be Infrastructure That's right. Week. There's That's a, right. You've got a great column right now at Seeing the Forest on this, which is also up online at the Campaign for America's Future, right. ourfuture.org. Give me a little bit of that column, just a taste. Okay. It was Infrastructure Week last week. A number of organizations, including the Chamber of Commerce and everybody, everybody's talking about, look, our infrastructure has been crumbling for a long time. We've really got to get on fixing the infrastructure. You know, the, the rail systems from the 50s are, you know, been improved a little. Bridges the, are falling into water. Bridges People are, are falling. poison water. We have a, an electrical grid system, you know, that's so far out of date that that is holding us back, etc. I mean, I could go on and on, but the American Society of Civil Engineers says we are 3.6 trillion behind on maintaining the infrastructure. 3.6 trillion. Yeah. Now, some of that's been budgeted. At least a trillion has not been budgeted. That's how far behind we are, and we're behind because we got into this starve the beast cut taxes thing, uh, the Reagan era. You know, we, we basically stopped maintaining or cut back, deferred. We've had deferred maintenance since then on our infrastructure, and everybody looks around and feels it now, especially travel to another country and come back here and ride the trains, okay? And I said maintaining, never mind modernizing high-speed rail and things like that, okay? Hyperloop. Okay, but... So we're we're 3.6 trillion behind on the infrastructure. Now, I presented a different way of looking at that based on uh, I, I was riffing off of a, a column written about what Larry Summers, evil Larry Summers, has been <laughs> talking about a lot lately, and he is he's been talking about how the world's economy has a problem, as many others have talked about. Of there's too much cash floating around with nowhere safe to put it, and there's insufficient demand worldwide. Now, what that means is we've got a few rich people with a heck of a lot of money now, then everybody else is struggling, and doesn't have enough money to really boom an economy. Mm -hmm. uh, Summers is talking about how we need worldwide stimulus and public investment in infrastructure and education and a lot of that. The ideology running governments right now is austerity. We have to cut back, cut back, cut back. It's the opposite of what Summers and others say the world needs. Well, I was pointing out something. Because of this glut of cash that a lot of rich people have, they are looking for investments to make. Mm -hmm. But you can't invest in very many good return, low-risk investments. It's very risky because there's not enough money in the economy. The economies are all slow around the world. China's 
slowing way down because they've s slowed down on their stimulus. For, they have various good reasons and bad. But worldwide, the cutbacks in government have led to lower demand, slower economies. Right. A lot of rich people don't have places to put their money. So they're putting it in. OK, we have treasury bonds. They're the safest investment in the world. Other countries have, have their bonds. They're very safe investments because the U.S. can just print money. It can. And the U.S. is not going, unless Donald Trump gets elected and does what he says, which he said he'd do, we're not going to default on those loans. He said he would. Republicans tried to make us default a few years ago, too. <laughs> but otherwise, so what they do is they put their money, they buy treasury bills, mm -hmm. which means that there's a huge demand for treasury bills. Treasury bill price is very high. Interest rate, I just, as I was driving here, I think it was 1.86 on a 10-year treasury bill. Mm -hmm. That's 1.86% you're going to get over 10 years if you buy a treasury bill. Some countries are at negative interest rates. If you look at the rate of inflation, it's going to be higher than 2.2%, hopefully. We want that. 2.2% inflation is good. Right. That's the target. We're getting 1.86. What that means is that that's a negative interest rate, a negative real interest rate. These people will pay the U.S. government for a treasury bond to, to hold their money. They're not getting interest. They're paying. They're getting less than the rate of inflation. So they're paying our government to hold their money. So the law of supply and demand, there's such a demand for treasury bills, we should be printing more. Law of supply and demand, we have to meet that demand by more. Right. They want more debt out of the U.S. government. The money markets are demanding that we borrow money and spend it on what governments spend their money on, which is public investment. And, and think about this, too. To make an economy run, you have to have an infrastructure backing up that economy. Right, right now, FedEx is having trouble because their roads are so bumpy that they have to repair their trucks more. Just for example. That's okay? amazing. I mean, it's that bad. Look at the traffic jams everywhere. We're in Silicon Valley. And you don't, you don't even try to go anywhere after three. <laughs> you don't. Good point. Yeah, yeah, and things like that. People can't get to work in the morning. Okay, so the, the infrastructure is slowing the economy. The demand for the government to borrow more money is very high, and governments use that money on infrastructure. So it's a market argument as well as a democracy argument that, that we, the people, should have better infrastructure, etc. And as promised, that's a little taste of Dave Johnson's column. I, I urge you to go to Seeing the Forest and check that out. It's definitely worth your time. He's got that gift of laying this stuff out so people can understand it. If I get financial arguments, you can get this. I promise. Dave Johnson, thank you for coming back to the broadcast. Thank you for having me on. Dave Johnson. You'll find his work at seeingtheforest.com and ourfuture.org. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Cuero sitting in. How many times have you heard a politician compared to Hitler? I have never heard the parallel made more often or from more corners of the culture until Donald Trump stood up for the presidency. Here's the deal very serious people that we have every reason to listen to have very knowledgeably made that same comparison. Who is going to argue with Holocaust survivors, including Anne Frank's stepsister? Now, when they compare Trump's words, Trump's campaign, with Hitler's words and Hitler's campaign, it's on us to listen. So I thought we will take this to the pros. 
I brought in Edith Sheffer, a specialist in European history and German studies at Stanford, and Charles Postel of San Francisco State's History Department to compare the rhetoric to their hard knowledge. These are excerpts from a conversation that we had in March. Let's talk about the seeding ground for the rise of Nazism. See if there are any comparisons there. There was a key phrase in something I read. That was the appeal of Hitler to Germans who were living drab lives. Germany and its people felt very oppressed and reduced in their circumstances after World War I because the, the settlements for the war were, were punitive and really did leave them stripped in a lot of ways, financially and otherwise. And I at least see the parallel between people who have, you know, their lives have been, their economic lives have been decimated by, by a long-standing recession. They don't feel particularly empowered. Do you see parallels, Edith, to where the Germans were then and where classes of Americans are now? I do see parallels, but I think not in the way you're suggesting. Okay. Um, I understand people commonly say that Hitler, as well as Trump, are speaking to the dispossessed, right? And we do have statistics that show that as unemployment rose in Germany over the 1920s, the popularity of the Nazis rose. And he absolutely was speaking to the dispossessed. But what I think is important to acknowledge about both the Trump phenomenon and the rise of Nazism is that these were big tent movements, that Trump is indeed appealing to a wide variety of people. He really does. I mean, we talk about um, the unemployed and people without, you know, college or, or high school degrees. But he, if you look at the exit polls, he really is crossing an entire swath of society, as did Hitler. And one of the reasons Nazism prevailed is because it was able to cut across these cleavages, religious, gender, class, urban, rural, and um, they were both big tent phenomena. This is a very complex question. And one thing to think about is, is people say, well, we have declining living standards, the middle class is being squeezed, and this is what's giving rise to Trump. Um, I have a lot of trouble with that type of simplistic one-on-one, -on -one, that's what's giving rise to Trump. We have in this country a long history of racially charged and xenophobic politics that's been going on for a long time. And it didn't start with Trump. It's been concentrated in the Republican Party over the last 20, 30 years as, as they increasingly adapted to this type of racial resentment and xenophobia inside the Republican Party. What's, to me, I think the most important thing that's going on today is that the Republican Party has is giving voice to this in ways that it's never done before mm -hmm. and more brutal forms than it's ever done before. I'm not sure that that shows much about what's going on in society. It's more shows what's going on in the Republican Party. I also think, you know, that the, his use of modern technology is interesting, too. And if, again, I'm a historian, I keep going back to this, this Weimar analogy. Um, Hitler was famed for employing film newsreels, right? The airplane. He was a master of um, projection. And, well, Trump is the master of the tweet. And the soundbite, he's utilizing modern technology in a way we've never seen in campaigning. While the technical things that he's saying might strike people as off, I think people are willing to overlook for this iconic kind of figure. And let me just add his hair, right? <laughs> <laughs> people, I 
I wasn't going to go there. Right. <laughs> People lampoon, right? He, and same with Hitler. He had the mustache. And again, I don't mean to draw these direct parallels, but you create this... He, these are not regular type of men. And so I think, I mean, in, in the minds of a lot of people, so they can get away with certain things that you couldn't if you, if you behaved in a more typical way. You know, I think it's inevitable that people are going to be making these comparisons. And partly it's because of the seriousness of the Trump phenomenon. Here he comes. He's a reality TV star, show person, who's not a, considered a serious person. He says he's running for president. And his main platform is he's going to round up and deport 12 million people who work and live among us. Mm -hmm. This is a monstrous platform. And people said, oh, that's, that's crazy. Anyone who says that, that's the end of his campaign. And boom, he shoots up in the polls. <laughs> the next it's, and I'm going to have a blockade against anyone who's a Muslim coming into the United States. Oh, it's temporary, but it's a blockade, including American citizens coming to the United States. Right. right. And people say, well, that's the end of this campaign. And boom, he shoots up in the polls. And this is frightening, rightfully so frightening. And people say, where's that coming from? What's this like? A buffoon on a campaign of intense xenophobia and racism shooting up in the politics. And people say, Hitler. And I don't think that's a strange thing. I would encourage people to think we have that tradition in the United States as well. We have similar traditions here that we should be looking at. Give me a couple. Well, the most famous, of course, is Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson really was a murderer. I mean, Trump talks about murdering journalists. I don't think he's, you know, but Andrew Jackson really was into murderous violence. He really did execute Indian removal. He really did enslave hundreds of people as his African-American slaves on his plantation. He was really a brutal, violent person. I never and, knew that. Oh, he, right. Which I mean, and I think he's. I think, in in a certain way, Trump is tame compared to Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson was a horrendous, violent, racist murderer. Uh, uh, do you want more language? Uh, 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 but but when but it is interesting. We don't say, oh, he's Andrew Jackson. We say, oh, he's Hitler. I go, he's Andrew Jackson, because I'm an American historian, and I think in even more contemporary examples, a lot of the racist politics that we've seen, George Wallace and others, we have American examples of this. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of the problem I have with the Hitler example. Right. And there has been authoritarianism, there has been populism, there have, has been nationalism. And I think the parallels that I see are this myth-making, right, this cult of personality, this ability to transcend oneself that is really powerful and also the ability to create ideas. You're talking about the dangers of deportation and banning. How many of Trump's supporters had ever thought about deporting Mexicans before he said it? How many people had ever thought about banning Muslims before he said it? And again, you look at these exit polls and apparently two thirds of all Republican primary voters across different states now believe in banning Muslims. You know, his ability to create people's desires is an amazing thing, too. It's, and that's the danger. That's European history and German studies specialist Edith Schaeffer of Stanford University and history professor Charles Postel of San Francisco State University. More of my conversation with them about the Trump-Hitler comparison in moments. Brad and Desi are out. I'm Angie Coyro sitting in here on the Bradcast.
when the Führer says, Wie ist der Master Race? Wie heil, heil. Right in the Führer's face, not to love the Führer. is a great disgrace, so be heil, heil. Right in the Führer's face. We're going back to my conversation now with history professors Edith Sheffer and Charles Postel, recorded in March. I really like this question from an audience member because it goes to the heart of what might happen if Hitler... I'm doing it now. (laughs) I swear that was an accident. What would happen if Trump actually did become president? And our, our guest wants to know, is it really speculation to assume that Trump will carry out his stated intentions, which would match or exceed Hitler's war crimes? Two levels to that. Do his supporters really believe that he can and will do what he says? And are the people who are paralleling him to Hitler... Do they really anticipate that war crimes or such terror would result? Right. And I think this comes back to how are we using this analogy? Are we using it as a prophecy or are we using it as a way to understand what's happening? Um, I hear a lot of people say, oh, Trump doesn't even really believe what he himself is saying because in the past he's held other more open-minded positions, whereas Hitler really was exterminationist from the start, right, with Mein Kampf. And so I, I think Comparing them as men and with intentionality is is very different. America is also not Weimar Germany. We have over 200 years of democracy. We have deep political institutions. We have bureaucracy. Weimar Germany lasted 13 years and was always incredibly fragile. At the beginning of the Weimar period in 1919, three quarters of Germans were voting for democratic parties. Three quarters of Germans supported democracy. By 1932, when the Nazis reached 37%, that's as high as they ever got, by the way. They had a ceiling at 37%. By 1932, two-thirds of Germans were voting for anti-democratic parties. Two-thirds of Germans wanted to overthrow the republic. That's not happening in America. So in terms of a prophecy, I can see slippage in these racial policies. I can see the coarsening of the discourse. I think the establishment is reacting in an appropriate way. They are drawing a line in the sand saying this won't happen, whereas the um, establishment in the Weimar period really did think they could manage and contain and go along with Hitler. That's Edith Sheffer. Her recent book is Burned Bridge, How East and West Germans Made the Iron Curtain. Charles Postel is with us, too, assistant professor of history at San Francisco State University. He is a specialist in political thought and social movements. I'm going to give this one to either of you to tackle. Trump has had a real estate empire, towers in New York, TV stardom, and now is a candidate. What did Hitler have before the Nazi party, besides being a failed painter? (laughs) But let's talk about this transformation from, you know, a reality star to a candidate to, you know, whatever Hitler started with. That's probably best in your area. Sure. The conventional story, he was pretty much a a loser, right? He was a failed art student. You know, he fought in World War I. He suffered injuries. He was disaffected. His early career in politics was made in Munich, and he was a go-between between a number of folkish, this extreme right-wing nationalist um, movements. And so his job, there were about 40 of them in Munich, and how he made a name for himself was funneling mo- money secretly into these paramilitary groups, into these folkish movements. And he basically used this position to establish a lar- large network for himself. So he very early went into politics and joined this this milieu in, in Munich. So no, he was not building apartment buildings in a grand business. <laughs> <laughs> he was always very immersed in, in politics after the war. Charles? I think that this goes back also to the question of Trump's rhetoric versus the reality. Trump uses a rhetoric 
of, of violence and intimidation, which I find terrifying. And that, that that a presidential candidate of that, at where he is now in the Republican Party, uses that type of rhetoric and even encouraging his, his supporters to beat up people and things of this nature. Hitler had a political movement that had stormtroopers. He had a major political, uh, well, not a major, it was a relatively small political party originally, but it had thugs in the street, militias organized that were wreaking, beating up Jews, beating up socialists, beating up left-wing opponents, beating up whoever they wanted to beat up to intimidate them. Uh, and that was his Hitler's world in the years before he, he pushes to power. So I think that's an important difference that, uh, that one is rhetoric and one is Hitler actually had these things to enforce intimidation. I want to also take to you, Charles, the, one of our audience says for years, many lower income white people have been voting against their own economic self-interest by voting for Republicans. It goes all the way back to Thomas Frank's What's the Matter with Kansas and really hasn't changed a lot. How come this faction of Trump supporters don't realize pro-business politicians aren't going to make their lives better, if, if you accept that premise? I accept a piece of the premise. I and mean, we have to keep in mind the Trump phenomenon, there, there's a Trump ceiling to voting. It's around, it's around 38 or 40 percent, perhaps. <laughs> it's around Hitler's. <laughs> uh, but that's actually wrong, because that's not a national vote. That's within the Republican Party. He's at, th he's at 38 within among Republican voters. What that means in the general vote, we don't have a measure, but we're talking about a relatively small section of Americans supporting Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's important to keep in mind. And then when you look at that small section, it's a very diverse group. The only thing that's not diverse about them is their skin color. It's white people. You mm -hmm. know, it's, it's mainly white people. But so I, I, I think it would be wrong to say the the white working class is supporting Trump. I think that would be a great mistake. Uh, a piece of it is. Some mm -hmm. of them are. My own personal opinion is that Trump is relatively adept at appealing to people who are upset with the trade deals and a, a upset with some of the economic agreements that have been going on. His basic appeal, though, is race. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's, I find it very difficult to believe that, that he puts deporting the Mexicans and building the wall at the center of every single campaign speech. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a reason for that. That is the, the basis of the appeal. So people are voting for him on that basis. And it's, you could say it's against their own interests, but that's not new. It's not new that this would happen. This has been going on for a long time. And it's just take, it's taken this surprising turn. One thing that goes a little afield of the Hitler comparison, which is the basis of this hour, but there are certain interesting undercurrents in the Trump campaign about gender roles and how, how women are treated. We've seen accusations come out against his, his primary campaign manager, you know, grabbing a, a, a woman reporter by the arm and leaving a bruise, and apparently now accusations with some documentation of drunk dialing and coming on to women reporters. And uh, Trump himself answered a question from a woman reporter the other day and said, I hope I answered your question. Beautiful. And, you know, she, she went public with that one. And I wonder, and I'll let either of you take this one, if there's an appeal to the gender messaging underneath the Trump campaign, if there's some faction of Americans that respond positively to that. Um, I'd like to add to your list of <laughs> his treatment of women that is a little more sinister than calling someone beautiful is his treatment of Megyn Kelly. 
mm. right? Um, talking about her menstruation. He made a comment of about Hillary Clinton, who took a bathroom break, right, during the debate, and she was doing whatever. There's a weird sexualization in his characterizations that you'd referred to the, the tweets before. It might appeal to some of his supporters, but again, I, I don't think we can really characterize his supporters. I, and I don't think that would necessarily, again, appeal to all of them. And I don't think it's a calculation on his part. I think, you know, this is just part of, of who he is. I'm Angie Cuero. My guests are Charles Postal of San Francisco State University, where he's assistant professor of history. You'll find his work in The Populist Vision, 2007 publication. You can find online. Edith Sheffer's latest work is Burned Bridge, How East and West Germans Made the Iron Curtain. She teaches modern European history and German studies at Stanford University. Something that, Edith, you wanted to bring up and one of our guests went there already. With comparisons to Hitler's militia, what about Trump encouraging his followers to beat up protesters? Some of that has been really ugly. It's very disturbing. You know, political violence is something Charles had brought up. Um, it was absolutely essential to the political campaigning style, not only of the Nazis, but of every political group in Weimar Germany had its own paramilitary. And in fact, a lot of this violence was staged. There would be communist paramilitary groups planted within Hitler's campaign rallies and order. I mean, it was very much um, dra a dramatization as, as we've been beginning to see at Trump's in rallies. And you see him encouraging it. He loves it. He's called it, and isn't this great entertainment? And then we were just talking here during the break about his comments about the convention. There might be riots if this is taken away from him and how that might even be prophesying violence in the future. And I, I definitely see parallels with the climate of political violence that then escalated in Weimar Germany and how ironically this fed to Hitler's image as law and order and how ironically these protests are feeding into a Trump image of law and order, the strong man. What did we learn from Weimar Germany and the rise of Hitler where at least we might be able to call attention to this one facet and at least get people to agree that, you know, punching protesters in the head from the side is not appropriate, saying afterward that maybe we should have killed him is not appropriate? How does one do that with the pitch of today's rhetoric? You know, Trump has yielded somewhat on that. I think we saw within the last week he did denounce some of the violence. And so I, I would hope that continuing to put up the political pressure on him himself. But I think, you know, continued media coverage of it is really the, the only thing we can do. We have a free press. We have people who are drawing lines in the sand. And I think those are our best weapons against it. Charles? I, I agree with that. I think there's a deeper problem, though, and that is that within the culture of the Republican Party over the last 30 years, and it's intensified, there's this notion that every opponent is a traitor, someone trying to destroy the country. And if you really believe that a supporter of Barack Obama is an enemy of the United States who's trying to hand the country over to the Muslims, why shouldn't you beat them up? Mm -hmm. You should beat them up. And I, so I think that there's a wider problem of dealing with what is going on in conservative politics. And you have these horrified conservatives, oh, this violent language, aghast, aghast. But these people have been fueling the same notion that the president of the United States is a hidden Muslim trying to destroy our country for the last seven and a half years. And so the politics that the, your political opponent is actually an unpatriotic traitor to your country who's trying to destroy us all. That is the source of this. Mm -hmm. That's what's going on here. You know, and back to the Hitler analogy, of course, Hitler was beating up the Jews and the communists who were betraying Germany, uh, who were the traitors who resulted in Germany's defeat in World War I. 
I think we have to deal with the type of politics that's given rise to this violent language. You can't just say, oh, Trump, behave yourself. I think what's new and important, especially since Obama was elected, but it started before that, is that it's one thing for you to be right. It's one thing to you strongly disagree, one thing to even think it's catastrophic. I per personally think that people who are fighting politicians who refuse to deal with the climate change issue, this is catastrophic. But I think if you take that to disagreement becomes you are a traitor secretly working for the enemy, then it's a different dialogue. It's no longer, I think you're wrong. Now you are actually the enemy, the internal enemy selling out your country. And that creates a whole different dynamic. I want to raise the question of hate speech. My son, and speaking of children, he's exposed to this every day at school. I'm actually, the last couple of debates haven't wanted him to watch because some of the material has been so inappropriate. And I don't want him to grow up with this idea of what's acceptable in politics. But he's repeatedly asking me, what's the definition of hate speech? And you know what it is. It's inciting violence mm -hmm. against a particular group of people. And so I think that that's maybe a context in which we can evaluate some of the things Trump is saying. I want to punch him in the face. Where does that come? into play. What does that tell us about how, how to attack it? I mean, Charles, if people are responding positively to, I want to punch him in the face, where do you go with that? Again, I'm coming to you for solutions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, if you really want to know my solution, Please. is that all the young people who are agitated in the, today's political process, they need, we need a lot of 20 and 30 year olds to get into politics at the, and get into the state legislatures. And to, we have a majority of these people controlling state legislatures across this country. And I don't, I don't consider Trump an outlier. I, if you listen to any of these governors uh, and state legislatures, not any of them, but the majority of them, they sound the same language. They're singing, ringing the same bells in terms of anti-Muslim and anti-Mexican rhetoric um, and similar things. Mm -hmm. We need to replace them. We need to remove, it's not, we cannot have one of our major political parties be a party of white resentment and white power uh, and xenophobia. That's what we have today. The Republican Party has become a conservative party of white resentment. Mm -hmm. And it controls a great deal of political power in this country. And until we have young people get into the political process and overturn this, we're going to have this, Trump may not win, but this will be banging on our door and we'll be having this discussion until this is solved. Uh, that you cannot win a national election or major elections on the basis of white resentment. Uh, until that changes, we're gonna be facing we're gonna be facing this problem. Something about what you said tipped me off about a really encouraging picture last night. Uh, we're recording this on the day after uh, the elections in Arizona. The race was called in Arizona. Maricopa County had not nearly enough polling places. And even after the race was called, any number of people were standing in line for another three hours insisting that they would get to vote. And they could easily have taken the message from the media that it didn't count anymore, that the election had been called. And as you said, Charles, if you look at those pictures, an awful lot of young people, a lot mm -hmm. of young people who would just not, not have their vote counted. Right. You did allude to Republican media dominance. One of our guests here wants to know how much of the Trump phenomenon is a result of Republican media dominance. Machinations of people like Frank Lutz, who is the messaging master for the Republicans, crafting dog whistle words and phrases. And we know, Edith, that manipulation of media and message was key to the rise of Hitler. So what does that teach us now? 
Well, as, as I've said earlier, I think that the free press, um, widespread agitation coming at this from multiple different angles is something that's definitely working in our favor. Um, I'd also like to say there is also hope to, you know, we talk about Trump self-destructing and what would that mean? He is based on this image of strength, right? The moment... I don't understand why some of his opponents haven't gone after him on, you know, the, this question about is he strong, is he as mythical as he appears. One of our guests here refers to the frustration around the Versailles Treaty in the rise of Hitler and the economic issues in the 20s, which we alluded to earlier this hour. Talking about the similar frustrations and fears that we have today, if we look at how Hitler answered those concerns— of being disenfranchised, of, of not having enough money, of being oppressed. And we look at that and say, gosh, if we had only done X, Y, Z, what's a better way to approach that with the rise of Trump? What did we learn from that situation in that timeline? Well, the Versailles settlement, as you say, was was a key factor. I, I have a hard time imagining Nazism or the brutal political culture that that rose out of it without humiliation in World War I and the devastating Versailles settlement, which demanded outrageous reparations for Germany. Germany lost a lot of territory. There was economic strife that resulted from this. And a major thing that I think we can learn at is the far right and Hitler had this stab in the back theory that Germany lost the war because leftists and Jews basically betrayed the nation and signed this horrific treaty and that they sold out. Without that, Germany would would have um, kept its national greatness. You know, I think there are obviously things that we can learn from Trump. And I think, as I'd said at the beginning of the show, he plays up this brinksmanship. We are on the brink of calamity. We This is an emergency situation. And I think the more that can be counteracted with a message of hopefulness and that things aren't as bad as they are, I think, um, you know, that undermines his message that he's the savior. Which brings us back to media, because media thrives by saying, this is urgent, look at this right yeah, now. Yeah. And whether it's a new soap powder or a political issue, it's urgent. Let's talk about the, the role of the media and where people are getting their messaging. Uh, many, many years ago, and a lot of listeners are too young to remember this, news divisions used to be separate from commercial divisions in radio and television. It was considered a public service, and it didn't matter if it produced a profit. Now, if you have a news agency within a larger uh, communications corporation, if you don't pay your way, you have to change the way you're doing it. So I'm wondering whether you feel that the media is doing a good job at getting real facts out there. And if you see that happening anywhere in media, where would you suggest our listeners go look for that? Who's doing a good job? Who's putting out the best information? I read the British Guardian pretty regularly. I read the New York Times. I read the Washington Post. But I also read a lot of... Uh, uh, I don't think you can be an informed citizen without reading... I read Red State. I read... <laughs> I read as many right-wing websites as I can that I have the stomach for. Um, uh, I don't think we can really understand what's going on without doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think we can understand. And I, so I think, I think, you know, to be informed, you have to cross these barriers now that exist in the, in the information systems. Otherwise, you don't know what the other side is talking about. You don't know what other people are thinking. Right. Uh, and I, so, so I think that's really essential to, to pay attention. And it is striking just how different these um, yeah. different venues are. Right. I listen to Rush Limbaugh sometimes yeah. on my yeah. way to work. I check right. the Drudge Report. And, you know, I, I love Rachel Maddow and, you know, the, I, the investigative journalism in the New York Times. But to flip channels between Fox News, MSNBC and CNN, you're entering different worlds. Yes. 
different vocabularies, different worldviews, it is, that is one of the problems. This is something I have had on my mind in, in, in regard to Versailles and the, <laughs> and the catastrophe of the German defeat in World War I. If you read the right-wing websites, you would think Benghazi was the same thing that Benghazi is America's great national humiliation, the, the great treachery from the inter, you know, a secretary of state who deviously supported the Muslim side and gave rise to this great national tragedy. And, and that's how you would read it. Uh, obviously, it, the parallels are completely farcical. It's a different it's reality. It's completely yeah. absurd. But to understand where they're coming from, you have to confront that. And then you have to confront, uh, you know, we have a Republican Party who's devoted to this image that mm. our national catastrophe was Benghazi. You know, uh, they're spending hundreds of million dollars in Congress to convince us of this. And so I think we need to deal with the fact that we have these alternate realities and confront them. You know, I think either, there's no other way to deal with it. Little tight for time, but I want to get a last last word from you too, Edith. Any any media recommendations? Any last thoughts on our topic? Just that I think to be careful about our use of analogies. Right now, we're using convention analogies. We're searching for answers. We're finding false security. I think and trying to prophesize the the outcomes. And um, you know, as a historian, I think as we've seen today, there's a lot to be gained by them and is a tool for analysis, but not as a way to provoke or attack or to use black and white thinking. Edith Sheffer of Stanford and San Francisco State University's Charles Postel spoke to me in March. And that is a wrap on this episode of The Bradcast. Thanks so much to Brad Friedman and Desi Doyen for asking me to sit in. Thanks also to producer Carolee Hazard and engineer Scott McDowell for help today and to Kepler's Books in Menlo Park. I'm Angie Gorbo. 